All glorious to the assembled All glorious to the assembled All glorious to the assembled All glories into Sri Gu and Goranga. All glorious to Sri Chapter 31, The Movements of the Living Entities. And this is Lord Kapiladev explaining death and rebirth and karma and how one gets entangled from texts 3 to 5. So it's, of course, very interesting that in most religious systems of the world, most philosophical systems of the world, there is little or no knowledge about the material energy. You know, there's very little knowledge about God, he's the creator, he's great. There's practically nothing, no knowledge of the self, of who we are. And again, practically nothing about the nature of the material world. And because of that, people naturally wanting to know about the world they're in, turn to empirical methods, just using the senses and logic without reference to scripture. So it's quite astonishing that this description of the child in the womb was given at a time when, as far as modern science is concerned, people were very primitive. According to modern science, 5,000 years ago, people were not very developed. And it's only recently that we've been able to do things like put a camera up into the womb and take pictures of the development of the embryo at all different stages. And yet, the so-called primitive people had much more advanced knowledge than we had in human society even a couple hundred years ago. So obviously, the modern story of history, some sort of linear thing where we go from being animals to being in modern science, is not correct. We hear about the development of the embryo. Text 3. Masenatu shiro dwabyam bahuangri adyang Bab angri ad yanga vigraha nakalomashticharani linga chidro bavastrabi masena 
Within a month, two, then, Shiraha, ahead, Dwabayam, in two months, Bahu, arms, Angri, feet, Adi, and so on, Anga, limbs, Vigraha, form, Naka, nails, Loma, body hair, Ashti, bones, Charmani, and skin, Linga, organ of generation, Chidra, apertures, Udbhavaha, appearance, Tribhi, within three months. In the course of a month, a head is formed, and at the end of two months, the hands, feet, and other limbs take shape. By the end of three months, the nails, fingers, toes, body, hair, bones, and skin appear, as do the organ of generation and the other apertures in the body, namely the eyes, nostrils, ears, mouth, and anus. Chatur bir dwabata sapta, pancha bhikshut shid udbhavaha, sad bir jaranyuna vita, kushau brahmanyati dakshine. Translation. Within four months from the date of conception, the seven essential ingredients of the body, namely child, blood, flesh, fat, bone, marrow, and semen, come into existence. So this verse is describing the constitution of the, of the body according to Ayurvedic categories of elements. And just recently, when I was in London, I heard two minutes of a recording of a talk by Bhaktivedanta Maharaj. And he made the point that in modern science, the different system of knowledge, different systems of knowledge are not really related to each other. So if you study psychology or you study mathematics, those two sciences basically have nothing to do with one another. They're completely different branches of knowledge. But in the Vedic conception, all branches of knowledge are interrelated. There's an underlying web that everything is coming from. So here we see this idea of the different, seven different parts of the body, seven different layers. But this also has to do with the different levels of consciousness, like anamoya, pranamoya, manamoya, gyanamoya, vigyanamoya, and anandamoya. It has to do also with the coverings of the universe, the creation of the universe and the creation of our particular subtle and gross body are very very similar. Actually, the process of creation of the whole cosmos and the process by which we create our material entanglement, Prabhupada says, also in the third canto, is the same process. You can see the working of the modes of nature. You can see the working of the basic elements. And no matter what branch of science you're studying, whether it's mathematics or whether it's psychology or whether it's biology, they all come back to the same essential truths. All knowledge is linked This concept, by the way, of separating knowledge into different branches like mathematics and sociology really was started by the Greeks just a few hundred years ago. It's not the original way that human beings learn. And I'm sure we all had experience in school that it felt very artificial. Okay, now we're going to sit down and study biology. But who in their real life does that? You You study biology in relationship to other things, not as a separated subject. And we always have this problem in modern education that the kids are saying, 
what do I need this for? What does it have to do with my life? What's the relevance to my life? Because in modern education, they don't see the connectedness of everything. I mean, ultimately, of course, everything connects in Krishna. The seven essential ingredients of the body, namely child, blood, flesh, fat, bone, marrow, and semen, come into existence. Uh, this uh, seven items are also progressively each more refined. One actually, according to Ayurveda, each turns into the other. So you eat food, it turns into basically rasa, which turns into blood, which turns into flesh or muscle, which turns into fat, which turns into bone, which turns into marrow, which turns into... <coughs> the reproductive fluid. So each is a more finer distillation of the one before. Again, we have this sort of progression also in creation. Of course, creation goes from subtle to gross. But here the elements in the body are going from gross to subtle. And the most subtle is what's called ojas. So the reproductive fluids, if they're used properly in the body, they become what's called ojas, which is effulgence, so a person's brightness and you can notice that if a person's healthy, they have a brightness about them. If a person's been living in a very sinful way or is very unhealthy, then they look kind of dull, isn't it? And I, I read a, a story one time of this man who became an advocate for the protection of animals. And before that, he had worked for the government to trap predator animals out in the West, coyotes and mountain lions, etc., that were harming the farmers' flocks. And one time he was out with his 10-year-old son. They had caught a lynx. And when they went to the trap, the <coughs> lynx was still alive. It actually died as they were looking. And the little boy looked at his father and he said, why did the light go out of his eyes? So when there's life, even though we're covered by this body, there's some light that's exhibited. Of course, people who have subtle powers, they can actually see colors of light that extend from our body. And this comes from the way we're digesting our food. Of course, food is originally what? All food is originally coming from where? The sunshine. Really, everything we're eating is just transformed sunlight. We're living on sunlight, which is a pretty cool concept. And if the digestion works properly and everything in the body works properly, that gets transformed back into ojas or light, which also produces tejas or power, potency. At the end of five months, hunger and thirst make themselves felt. So, of course, this is interesting because the child in the womb is not eating through their mouth. They're eating through the umbilical cord, but still they have a sense of being hungry or thirsty. So if the mother isn't, doesn't eat for a while or doesn't drink for a while the child will feel hunger and thirst. At the end of six months, the fetus, enclosed by the amnion, begins to move on the right side of the abdomen. Purport. When the, when the body of the child is completely formed at the end of six months, by the way, the six lunar months, the child, if he is male, begins to move on the right side, and if female, she tries to move on the left side. As I know, us, us ladies, when we were pregnant, we tried to figure out what gender of child we'd have by where we first felt the movements. But of course, um, that's a little hard to discern because the beginning movements are very subtle. Okay, text five. Matur jagana panadyar ehadatur asammate shete vin murtrayo garte sa jantur jantu sambhave. 
Deriving its nutrition from the food and drink taken by the mother, the fetus grows and remains in that abominable residence of stools and urine, which is the breeding place of all kinds of worms. Purport. In the Markandeya Purana, it is said that in the intestine of the mother, the umbilical cord, which is known as apyayani, joins the mother to the abdomen of the child, and through this passage, the child within the womb accepts the mother's assimilated foodstuff. In this way, the child is fed by the mother's intestine within the womb and grows from day to day. The statement of the Markandeya Purana about the child's situation within the womb is exactly corroborated by modern medical science, and thus the authority of the Puranas cannot be disproved, as is sometimes attempted by the Mayavadi philosophers. This is interesting that Srila Prabhupada is saying, we know the Puranas are accurate because they've been, they've been verified by empirical research. So that's sort of an interesting concept. Generally, we're not feeling that the Shastra needs to be corroborated by empirical research in order to show its authority. But the fact that it is definitely gives us more faith. And in fact, we would expect it to be. After all, Krishna says, Raja Vidya Raja Guyam, Pavitram Idamutamam, Prachakshavagam, Dhamam Susukam, Kartam Adhyam. What is the ultimate proof of anything? A lot of times people say, you know, can you prove that there's God? Or this is proof of something. But I've often wondered how you can say anything is proof. What would proof mean? What would we mean by proof? Somebody want to venture the definition of the word proof? It's subjective. Hmm? It's quite subjective. Physical evidence. Physical proof is quite, actually quite subjective. Some sort of physical evidence that what? What would we call proof? Something we can uh, sense with our senses. It's okay. And? Something we can't disprove. So we can't disprove. Actually, that's an interesting point because uh, modern scientific proofs simply means it hasn't been disproven yet. According to empiricism, you can never say that something is true. There's several problems with empiricism. And one of them is you can never say through empiricism that something is true. You just can't say something is true. You can say, so far, we haven't found it to be false. Because maybe there's something in space and time that you haven't encountered yet that will contradict it. And does that happen in, in empirical research? A lot of times. They find something, it's, this is true, and then later on, oh, well, maybe it's not true. Or maybe it's true just from a certain perspective. Or maybe it's true just, just like Newtonian physics and quantum physics. They're not really compatible with each other. They're two very different systems, two very different ways of looking at the same thing. But they don't harmonize with each other. And in general, empirical proofs are just simply, well, we're assuming our premises are true. And if our premises are true, then we have a true conclusion. But we don't know for sure that our premises are true. We cannot see everything everywhere. There might be something we haven't seen. Or there might be another way of interpreting it. Of course, it's quite interesting that generally, in modern society, we're told that empiricism is a good way of finding out absolute knowledge. That's how we're raised in school, isn't it? And we're told that empiricism is a much better way of finding out absolute knowledge than is religion. We're told religion is a very poor way 
of finding absolute knowledge, and empiricism is a very good way. Not perfect, perhaps, but very good. And we're told that by empiricism, we're going to keep learning basically the, the way, the model that they teach us is we know this much, and then pretty soon we know this much, and pretty soon we know this much, and pretty soon we know this much, and then after a while we'll know everything. That's the model that they're teaching us. But when you get up to the PhD level, they tell you a whole different story. Then they require that you take this class called the philosophy of research. And the first thing they tell you is empiricism never gives you anything that's truthful. It really, if this is the whole picture, an empiric thing is either is looking at this, and then there's some things that don't match. So then you look at that, and those things don't match. And then you look at that, and those things don't match. Just now you're not doing this. You're doing this. You're looking at just different aspects of reality, and you never get a picture that explains everything. And this, was, this is called a paradigm. You have a particular paradigm that you're viewing reality through, and that keeps changing. So that's the problem with empiricism. It does not give you absolute knowledge, nor does it give you total knowledge. It gives you a piece of relative subjective knowledge that's due to a particular paradigm. So if you're really interested in this subject, I suggest you read Thomas Kuhn's book, Structure of Scientific Revol uh, Revolution, but do read it with a study guide. It's a rather dense uh, book. You can find some nice study guides online. But he explains this whole phenomena, that modern science really is operating within a particular paradigm, and that when they change things, they have to change their paradigm, which means they change their whole vision of reality. So at the same time, having just now thoroughly put down modern empirical science, we will also say that it is useful. In one sense, the only ultimate proof is my own experience. I've really gotten away from using this word proof. I like to use the word evidence. Because proof is something that you decide that you're willing to accept. Isn't it? If I tell you something that's a proof for me, and you say, well, that's not a proof for me. We could say a proof is something that everybody would accept. But how many things are there that everybody accepts? Not very many. You find somebody will argue with you. I'm sure you've had that experience, right? <laughs> that the things that we're convinced of, that's also one of the elements of what's wrong with empiricism. That what's obvious to me isn't obvious to you. Have you had that experience? You look at something and you say, it's obvious. And maybe your good friend or even your family member says, no, that's not the way it is at all. And you're like, can't you see it? It's right there. And then, no, it's not what I see. Right? So that's another problem. That what's proof to me is not proof to you. What's going to be the ultimate proof to me is my own experience of truth. Therefore, Krishna says, what is the king of knowledge, Rajavidya? is also Rajaguyam. It's very secret. Why is it very secret? Why is the king of knowledge very secret? Well, many reasons. But one we could look at right now is because it's got to be personally experienced, and you can't experience my experience. If I see Krishna standing and talking to me, you may not see just like Prabhupada was asked, you know, have you ever seen Krishna? And at least on one occasion he answered by saying, yes, I see him at every moment. He didn't always give that answer. He gave different answers at different times. But so you could be right in the room with Srila Prabhupada. He's saying he's seeing Krishna at every moment, but you might not see Krishna. That might not be your experience. 
just like people who have these you know, out-of-body experiences or near-death experiences. And one of the common features of them is that the people are completely convinced what I experienced was real, what I experienced was more real than what I experienced in my body. Which is interesting because St. Teresa says that one of the greatest proofs that one has entered into a higher state of realization is one is completely convinced that one's experience is real. But other people might not be convinced. Some doctor attending the patient, and the patient comes back and says, you know, I experienced I was floating in a higher realm. And the doctor may say, oh, some kind of hallucination. It may not be convincing to them. So ultimately, the reason that the Puranas have authority is not, as Prabhupada's saying here, that it's corroborated by modern science. That's useful. We would expect it to be. We would expect that if the Puranas are telling the truth, that our direct empirical experience would also be in accord with it. But of course, there are many things here in the Puranas of which we don't have direct experience. In the Puranas, it talks about eagles flying from one planet to another. Now, Sadhguru reports on some astronauts who claim to have seen some, but this is not a generally accepted empirical fact in modern society. Or spaceships and people with mystic powers, Kardala Muni who creates a city with his mind. So this is not our general empirical experience. I mean, I haven't personally met anybody who could create a city with their mind. Although perhaps some people are like that are living on the planet. So there's a lot in the scriptures that is difficult to verify empirically. If we were depending on empirical verification in order to accept the authority of the Puranas, then we'd have to say, well, this part we'll accept and this part we're not accept, which was, of course, what a lot of people do. And I've even met members of the Hare Krishna movement who do that. Well, this part's really spiritual, we'll accept that. And this part, well, I don't know, there's different empirical evidence and we'll accept the empirical evidence rather than the Puranas. And definitely one of the problems is in the Shastra, there are many supernatural explanations and descriptions that, you know, I haven't met anybody who's had that experience. Well, I mean, I personally have met some people who claim to be yogis and who claim to be able to travel out of their body and see the things that are mentioned in the Bhagavatam. Two of those people that I've met are also devotees in good standing and sane and rational people. But it's not my experience. You know, they could come to me and say, Ermila, I left my body and traveled in the universe and saw the Loka-Loka mountain. But I haven't seen the Loka-Loka mountain, not in this body, in this life. So then it's just a question of believing them. You know, I've got to believe the scriptures or I've got to believe them. So how do we deal with the supernatural things in the Shastra for which there is no empirical verification? And my own answer to that is that any explanation of reality has to come at a certain point to something supernatural beyond our experience. Even the empirical scientists who are so proud of being logical and rational and not dealing with anything supernatural, they explain the beginning of the universe as an infinitely small, infinitely dense chunk that mysteriously exploded. And it was outside of space and time and it created space and time. Now, all of that sounds very supernatural to me. How can something be infinitely small and infinitely dense? Right there, that's a supernatural idea. Something that's infinitely dense wouldn't be infinitely small. It seems it would be infinitely big. <laughs> and how can something exist out of space and time and create space and time? Well, that sounds pretty supernatural to me. And where did this infinitely small, infinitely dense chunk out of space and time come from? 
Is it just self-manifesting? Well, that sounds pretty supernatural to me, too. And where was it outside of space and time? Well, that sounds pretty supernatural. And then it explodes, and it creates a universe? Well, that's out of my experience. You know, the explosions, what explosions have I seen? I've seen an exploding blender in a kitchen. <laughs> and that sure didn't create a universe, it just created a mess. You know, the only kind of explosions that I've seen created mess, not order. So we had one devotee who told this joke, he had a, his, like a radio realm, he called it, and one of his stories was, we have a new way of building a house. We're just going to pile all the bricks and the wood and the doors and the windows on your lot and bring some dynamite and blow it up and there's your house. Well, so that's not our experience. So the idea that somebody's going to explode and create the sun and planets orbiting the sun so perfectly that you can predict thousands of years from now exactly where they'll be. I mean, try doing that with an airplane. Right? It was, what airplane were we on? Ryanair, where they're say, we're the most on-time airline. Well, you know how they do that. Their estimated arrival time is much later than they actually think they're going to arrive. <laughs> so therefore, they're, they're on time. You know, we, we can't control that kind of thing. Even very intelligent human beings, even you know, hundreds or thousands of intelligent human beings who are strongly motivated to make sure the trains or the planes run on time, they can't do it. And we're going to have planets running perfectly on time from a mindless explosion? So that's all very supernatural. So my own conclusion is that any explanation of reality has to come to something supernatural. If the people who are totally opposed to the supernatural and totally opposed to anything we can't perceive with our senses and understand through logic, if they end up having to resort to supernatural explanations, obviously you just can't avoid it. So what would I rather believe? Would I rather believe that there are some you know, mindless explosions of chunks? Or would I rather believe that there's this huge Vishnu lying in an ocean of spiritual water breathing out universes and creating four-headed beings from a lotus flower coming from his navel. I, I'll take the Mahavishnu story any day. It's much cooler. You know, I, I'd rather be in a universe run by a gigantic four-handed you know, lotus from the navel, joyful person than from exploding chunks. And if you think about it, if you look at what kind of society their exploding chunk theory is created, it's not a very nice society. You know, they're, they're constantly exploding things, trying to create some harmony. Let's create harmony through war. Let's create, you know, let's create a great society by blowing up the earth and blowing up cities. <coughs> let's get everything we need by drilling into the earth and blowing up mountains, and we'll create something useful. So that's their idea, whereas... Our idea is you're going to create something useful through loving persons and, and intention, loving intention, rather than through explosions. All right, going on to the purport. Since the child depends completely on the assimilated foodstuff of the mother, during pregnancy there are restrictions on the food taken by the mother. Too much salt, chili, onion, and similar food is forbidden for the pregnant mother because the child's body is too delicate and new for him to tolerate such pungent food. So the child's just getting the mother's blood. 
child's not eating directly, but evidently these sort of ingredients affect the blood and therefore affect how the child feels even though it's coming indirectly. Restriction and restrictions and precautions to be taken by the pregnant mother as enunciated in the Smriti scriptures of Vedic literature are very useful. We can understand from the Vedic literature how much care is taken to beget a nice child in society. The Garbhadana ceremony before sexual intercourse was compulsory for persons in the higher grades of society, and it is very scientific. Other processes recommended in the Vedic literature during pregnancy are also very important. So there's a number of samskaras done during pregnancy, right after birth also. To take care of the child is the primary duty of the parents, because if such care is taken, society will be filled with good population to maintain the peace and prosperity of the society, country, and human race. So what do we want to maintain, Prabhupada saying two things? What were they? Child and society to maintain? Human race in what condition? Peace and prosperity. That's an interesting concept. I think that there's a lot of devotees who don't really believe that we should have a society full of peace and prosperity. There's a concept that if you're a spiritual person, you shouldn't be interested in prosperity. Prosperity means opulence. That everybody has sufficient food and water. Not just food, but good food. <laughs> it's like staying here. So Madhvachar and Kunti, they buy only organic food, even flour. Everything's cooked really nicely, and I feel so healthy here. I can't remember when I felt as healthy as I'm feeling here. And I was thinking, wow, it really makes such a difference to have a high quality of ingredients. When I was in Italy, I was telling them how wonderful the prasadam was. I said, that's because we use good ingredients. So this kind of prosperity, health of the body, health of the mind, right? not just clothes, but nice clothes, nice food, proper living facility, prosperity. Not just bare uh, subsistence. The one purple Prabhupada said the Brahmins were not literally poor because the Kshatriyas in the society, would, they would provide them with proper living facility and everything they needed for life so they could engage in studying the scriptures without anxiety. So you'll find this kind of thing all over Srila Prabhupada's books and lectures. That a spiritually sane society is also materially prosperous. It's everywhere. Uh, this concept that one should be a devotee and not have a nice material situation also is not what Shiva Prabhupada is teaching. Of course, devotees engage in austerity and we're not interested in some gorgeous arrangement just for sense gratification. Uh, but to be prosperous, to have enough, like with Maharaj Yudhisthira when he went to collect gold for a sacrifice, the gold was just sitting there from a previous yagya thousands of years before. And Prabhupada said the people, they weren't even interested in it. It's just like if you had a big feast, there's food lying around and you're, you're, you're satiated. You're not interested. If you had all the money you needed for everything you needed, then money could be lying around. You wouldn't be interested, isn't it? Well, who needs that for? I mean, how many pairs of shoes and how many coats and how many houses do you need? So if, if everybody is prosperous then there's no reason to exploit anyone. There's no reason to steal anything. And that's the kind of society that exists when people are Krishna conscious. So that's our first seeming contradiction here in terms of what most people think, that most people think that spiritual life means that you have to live in poverty. 
that society has to be impoverished. And even their devotees who are saying, well, it'll be really good if there's some catastrophe in the world because then people will become Krishna conscious. That's not really how we think. Actually, when there's catastrophes, people tend to be less interested in God consciousness. They become interested just in, in survival. Prabhupada said, if someone's hungry, you can't talk to them about God. You've got to feed them first. You know, if you can't breathe, then all you're thinking about is breathing. You're not going to be thinking about anything else. So really, the proper situation for people to take to Krishna consciousness is one, as Prabhupada says here, good population and peace and prosperity. Then the other interesting thing is that Srila Prabhupada's talking, as he often does. I mean, consistently, Prabhupada talks about peace and prosperity. That's consistent. You will not find Srila Prabhupada ever saying that a God-conscious society means a society of scarcity and want and poverty. And not yet, you will not find one place. You'll find some place where an individual yogi may go to the forest and live without anything. Now, they're experiencing prosperity on a different level internally. But you'll never find Prabhupada saying that a spiritual society is a society of poverty and scarcity and, and criminality and, and filth and disorder. But you will find Srila Prabhupada talking about how one should be detached from family life. That's a recurrent theme in Prabhupada's books and lectures. And here we find a place where Srila Prabhupada saying that the parents have, what does he say here? To take care of the child is the primary duty of the parents. Of course, Krishna says this to the gopis when they come to dance with him. He says, your first duty is to go take care of your children. Of course, they didn't listen to him. <laughs> And if you're, if you're a gopi and you hear Krishna's flute, you don't have to do this. You can just go dance with Krishna in the middle of the night and let your milk boil over on the stove. So the gopis were in that situation. If, if we think about that kind of external giving up care of family on the external platform, detachment from family manifested like that. Let's think for a minute about the position of the gopis. So Prabhupada says in the Krishna book that most of these gopis, they were coming from the status of ordinary human beings. They were sadhakasiddhas. And they were, who were many of them in their last life? They were great yogis. They were, they were followers of Lord Ramachandra. Some of them were the personified Vedas. Do you think they were very attached to Dharma? No? They were very righteous people. And we, couldn't, we wouldn't see in their past life them doing something like just leaving their little babies hungry and leaving the japati cooking on the stove and leaving the milk to boil over and leaving their husbands in the middle of feeding them. Because that's what they did. Imagine these were living entities who probably for many, many lifetimes, were wanting to have Krishna just like in this life, we're all wanting Krishna, right? We all want Krishna? Mm -hmm. We're just saying, when? When is it going to happen? When is it going to happen that I chant my japa and I experience Radha Krishna dancing on my tongue? Do you think that way? Hopefully every day, every mantra. <laughs> hey, when is Krishna going to be dancing on my tongue? When am I going to chant the pure holy name? When am I going to look at the deities and see that there's Radha and Krishna? When am I going to eat prasadam? and feel, oh, this is the taste of Krishna's lips. When am I going to realize my eternal self? When am I going to see Krishna? Aren't we thinking like that? I hope we'll be some. 
hopefully at least while we do our sadhana every day, we're thinking like that. And we're engaged in this process of Krishna consciousness for that end. And most likely this is not our first birth doing this, according to Rupa Goswami. So if we're serious devotees in this life, we've probably done this before. I once asked an audience of about 300 devotees at New Vrindavan, how many of you feel that this is not your first life practicing Krishna consciousness? And 90% of them raised their hand. So then finally, finally we get to take birth in the womb of a gopi in Vrindavan. Get to see Krishna. And one day Krishna steals our clothes and says, I will fulfill your desire later. And then it's a whole year later. And finally, we hear Krishna blowing his flute. And when Krishna blows his flute, each gopi hears her own name called by the flute. Just like each cow hears their own name when Krishna plays his flute. The gopis don't know that all the other gopis are going to be. Krishna's <laughs> calling me. So after so many years and lifetimes, you just imagine finally you hear Krishna calling you. Would you, what would, would you like, take a whole lot of time to get ready? <laughs> so they're trying to look nice for Krishna. They're thinking, I want to look nice for Krishna. But, you know, finally, Krishna's finally calling. And they can't even dress themselves properly. And they just leave everything. Baba says, no matter how urgent, no matter how urgent it is, the baby's crying. Krishna's calling me finally. And then they go there. And then they get there. And that very bad boy, Krishna, he says, what have you come here for? Why don't you go home? And the Acharyas explain that generally uh, the gopis are unwilling to engage in their various sports and Krishna has to, insta- has to push. You know, we see this, of course, in this world that the man is running after the female. The, man, the male is wooing the female. But sometimes Krishna wants the gopis and usually the gopis are saying, we don't want anything to do with you. you know, we're nice chase girls of the village, and we're not going to dance with you, and we're not going to play games with you. But sometimes Krishna wants the gopis actually to reveal their desires. So he tells them, you go home, and then the gopis say, but we're in love with you. <laughs> We've come here to dance with you. And then uh, Krishna is walking with them and talking with them and their desires to be with him come to a fever pitch and then what does he do? He And then they go completely mad. Completely. And they actually start thinking of their Krishna. They go into a deep ecstasy of oneness with Krishna. Anyway, the point is we can understand why the gopis didn't go home. <laughs> if after so many lifetimes of engaging in bhakti and wanting Krishna and then he finally calls you and there you are with Krishna you're finally going to achieve the fruit of all of your devotion and all of your prayers and then Krishna says go home you're going to say no <laughs> I'm staying right here <laughs> that's what they said but Prabhupada says other than that that Krishna's instructions were actually honestly given and that for uh, those of us who haven't yet had Krishna call us to the forest with his flute. That, that's our duty, is to take proper care of our families, and especially the children. So that's, uh, that's the external, that one should not give up one's external unless one's called by Krishna. But we think about, aren't there a lot of instructions about being detached? 
In fact, Krishna says this right in the process of knowledge. One of the items, the process of knowledge, is detachment from wife, children, home, and the rest. And sometimes people think, well, that's just for the man. The man is supposed to be detached. But elsewhere in Wakipila Dave's instructions, he tells his mother, the woman's also supposed, to be, also supposed to be detached. If the woman is thinking, oh, my husband is my shelter, my husband is, he's the source of all my happiness, he said then that will be like her death, like a deer, a hunter calls a deer to its death. So how do we put this together? That we're told over and over again that we're supposed to be detached, especially detached from family life. And yet there's these purports where Prabhupada says this is our prime duty, he says, the primary duty is to take care of the children or Krishna's instructions to the gopis. This is the primary duty. And without doing this, you're not going to have peace and prosperity in society. You're not going to have good population. I mean, we know this, that if parents don't take proper care of their children, the population goes bad. And are we seeing this more and more and more and more and more? You know, in the 1960s, I think it was 4% of children in America were born out of marriage. Now it is 40%. And the sociologists say, as soon as you get to 25% of children born out of marriage, the whole society starts crumbling. Even the sociologists know that this unwanted children causes havoc in society. And a lot of these children born out of wedlock are intentionally born out of wedlock. We have... Single women going and impregnate, getting themselves impregnated somehow or other uh, through the normal means or some other means. Because they're saying, well, I'm getting older and I'm not going to have a husband and I want a baby. Educated women are intentionally producing children out of marriage. And you're not going to have good population this way. I mean, we're not talking about individuals. Obviously, individuals can grow up in all kinds of strange situations and still become good people and Individuals can grow up in good situations and still become bad people. We're talking about a general thing, not an individual thing. Generally, if people don't have a sane, loving, stable upbringing, they have problems. Generally. Like we say, there are exceptions. Bad kids come from good situations and good kids come from bad situations. But that's not the rule. And, and everybody knows this. This is not some sort of mysterious... You know, we don't have to read the scripture for this. Again, this is another thing that comes from empirical evidence. And what happens when you have bad population? You don't have peace. They become criminals. They get involved in intoxication. They get involved in illicit sex. And then you don't have prosperity. You know, we're talking about now how we're, how we're losing our prosperity, even here in America, where we're so proud of being... You know, one of the most, if not the most prosperous nations on earth. And we're losing our prosperity. People who want to work can't work. People don't have enough money to live. People are afraid of crime. And it comes down to good population. It comes down to people who have higher values, which come down to the two families. And proper care. What is it? Half of families now are ending in divorce? Half of first marriages end in divorce, and 60% of second marriages end in divorce, and like 80% of third marriages end in divorce. And, you know, we all know so many people who say, well, this is my, my, this is my stepmother, and that's my other stepmother, and that's my other stepfather, and that's my second stepfather's girlfriend signed by her. <laughs> right? Even among devotees, sometimes you run into this kind of stuff. Of course, some people say we have as, as bad of a statistics as 
as out in the world, but there's no research to back that up, by the way. When I did my research on the teachers in the Hare Krishna movement, the remarriage after divorce or widowhood rate was 1.7%. So at least the people teaching in our schools in the movement have a less than 2% remarriage rate. And only 2% of them were divorced or widowed. So I don't, I don't believe the statistics that we're as bad as the outside population. But anyway, the situation in the world today has gotten really bad as far as taking care of children. And practically every day you'll read in the news about some other parent who abused their child, you know, tortured their child and killed their child. What to speak of all the abortions? You know, here's talking about specifically the mother taking care of the child in the womb. You know, to kill your own child in the womb, that's the time when your child is the most helpless and the most dependent. And, and why are they having these abortions? For convenience and, and social status, mostly. You know, if you read stories of people who have abortions, it's, it's mostly because, well, I was, you know, a month away from getting my degree, and I already had a job lined up, and I wasn't married, and I thought, well, you know, how am I going to take care of the kid? Better to kill it. So we have, you know, and, and, then, and then they wonder why there's no peace and prosperity in society. And how interesting that the whole concept of abortion and, and contraception was to try to avoid unwanted children. Isn't that interesting? I mean, when we started having wide-scale use of contraception, it, it didn't used to be like that. And then when abortion was legalized, it was, well, if we do this, then the only people having children will be people who really want them and will have loved children. Because I say, even the sociologists know to have peace and prosperity, you've got to have loved and wanted children. It's not a secret. But how interesting that the number of unwanted children has increased by ten times <coughs> since having wide-scale contraception and abortion. It hasn't decreased the number of unwanted children or decreased the number of abused children. It's increased it by ten times. You can't have a society where on the one hand people can kill their children and on the other hand people can love their children. It just doesn't work. You know, I'm going to kill my child out of convenience and then I'm going to love my child out of convenience. That's not real love. So we know this has to be there, yet we have to be detached. What are we supposed to be detached from? Our detachment can't look like the modern idea that you walk away from your family. Because that doesn't make peace and prosperity in society. If the man just says, oh, now I'm detached from my wife and kids, I'm walking away. That doesn't create peace in society. If the woman says, oh, I'm detached from my kids, I don't care if I have them or not, I can kill them. That doesn't create peace in society. That creates chaos. So that so-called detachment is in what mode? I'm just going to leave my wife and kids, I'm just going to leave my husband, I'm going to neglect my kids, I'm going to abuse my kids. What mode is that in? Ignorance, that's the mode of ignorance. Mode of passion is, I'm taking nice care of my family so that I can be happy in the world. That's the mode of passion. I'm, I'm a good, righteous father, I'm a good, righteous mother, I'm a good auntie, a good... I am a righteous person, I do the right thing. Most religious systems are teaching the mode of passion. You know, family values. It's all the mode of passion. 
mode of goodness is I take nice care of my family because I want to become purified. And transcendental is I take nice care of my family. Why? Please Krishna. Please Krishna. And if Krishna tells me, leave your family and do something else, that's then I do that. I'll do it for Krishna and I'll leave it for Krishna. Either way. Take nice care of my family for Krishna when I'm a grasta. And then be externally detached from my family when I'm older, when Krishna desires as a manaprasta and sannyasi. And whatever I do, Prabhupada wrote this wonderful letter to Jaki Thakamarsh, that, I, that surrender means whatever is meant to be, I am doing, and I do that to my best ability. So the position I'm in, that's the right position for me. I make sure I'm in the right position for me. And then I say, Krishna has given me this service, and I do it to the best of my ability. I do it first class. I become expert. It's one of the 26 qualities of a devotee. Expert. So if I'm a mother, I'm an expert mother. If I'm a father, I'm an expert father. Be an expert wife, an expert husband, an expert lawyer or a doctor or a street sweeper or a dancer or whatever one is. For Krishna. And when it comes time to walk away from that, okay, now it's time to be renounced and take Manaprasta, my children are grown up. Then I do that expertly for Krishna. I'm not attached to the thing. I'm attached to the service. That's what it means to be detached. What do we want to be detached from? We want to be detached from the idea of I am the doer. And I am the owner, and I am the enjoyer. Krishna is the enjoyer. So attachment means I'm going to enjoy this family. You know, the person in the mode of ignorance wants to enjoy by being sinful. I'll enjoy this woman or this man, and now this woman, now this man, and now this one, now this one, now this one. And if there's any children, oh well, kill them or neglect them. That's the way the person in the mode of ignorance wants to enjoy. The way the person in the mode of passion wants to enjoy is I'm righteous. I'm good. And my wife, I'm taking care of my wife so she'll please me. I'm taking care of my husband so he'll please me. I'm taking care of my children so that they'll become honor students and they'll become doctors and lawyers and I'll be able to say, my son wrote this book. My daughter built this building. These are my children. That's the mode of passion. My children are here for my enjoyment. I take good care of them, but for my enjoyment. My child was an honor student at, you know, St. Francis And I am a great person. In the mode of goodness, one is getting one's pleasure from internal realization of the self. One is getting one's pleasure from trying to connect with the self, from wanting purification. One is taking care of one's children and one's family members, thinking if I do this, I'll get out of material entanglement. I'll get out of sinful activity. And the transcendentalist is getting their pleasure from Krishna smiling. Or if I cook something nice and my husband eats the nice prasadam, Krishna will smile. If I take good care of my son, my daughter, Krishna will be happy. So everyone is looking for pleasure and undemaya be a sat. But we become detached from the concept of getting pleasure separately from Krishna. That's what we become detached from. And you can't do that anyway. How can you get pleasure separately from Krishna? It's just not possible. Even the person in the mode of ignorance, their pleasure is actually coming from Krishna, isn't it? Krishna is the reservoir of all pleasure. Rasoham apsukantaya means all enjoyment. All enjoyment is actually coming from Krishna. Even mode of ignorance enjoyment. As Prabhupada talks about how there's nothing outside of the 12 rasas. 
And one of the rasas is a ghastly rasa. It's like when Krishna's fighting and they make a river of blood and the severed heads look like turtles flowing in the river. Maybe we could open the window a little bit. Get some oxygen. So Krishna's enjoying some ghastly rasa. And so even people who like, you know, horror movies or whatever, they're just trying to enjoy something that's coming from Krishna. If I'm enjoying the association of my husband, my wife, my children, it's actually the gopis say to Krishna, the only reason our family members are dear to us is because you're there as a super soul. They're part of you. So whatever we're enjoying is Krishna. But the devotee becomes detached from having this idea that I'm going to enjoy Krishna separate from Krishna. (coughs) Which is, of course, an impossibility. Therefore, it's an illusion. I'm going to become detached from the illusion that I can enjoy Krishna separate from Krishna. That I can take pleasure from Krishna and go kind of sneak off in the corner with it and enjoy it by myself. I'm going to give that up. Because I can't do it anyway. Everything I'm enjoying is already coming from Krishna. So I'm going to get my enjoyment by pleasing Krishna. I'm going to get my pleasure at Krishna's pleasure. Just like the hand gets its pleasure at the pleasure of the stomach. Just like Prabhupada told my father in 76. If you put good food in your stomach, you'll have good eyesight. And you put the food in your eyes, you become blind. <laughs> so we become detached from putting food in our eyes. We don't get detached from food. We get detached from putting food in our eyes. So in this way, one becomes detached from family life. My wife is not an object of enjoyment. My wife is an object for me to serve. Someone for me to serve. My husband is not an object of enjoyment. My husband is there for me to serve. My children are there for me to serve. But where am I going to get my pleasure then? If I'm always giving, 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 where am I? I have to get my pleasure too. Where am I going to get my pleasure? from meditating on how Krishna is smiling at how I'm taking care of my wife, my husband, my children. How Srila Prabhupada is smiling. How my guru is smiling. That Krishna and all the acharyas, they want a society full of what? Peace and prosperity. That's what they want. Krishna doesn't want a society full of chaos and poverty. With bad population. Pandemonium, that means demons running all over the place. Like Pan Am Airlines, you know, over America. Pan means everywhere. Demonium. Pandemonium. Krishna doesn't want the world to be pandemonium and chaos and poverty and want and crime and war and disease. and That's not what he wants. I mean, would you want that for your children? Krishna is a better parent than we are. He's the father of everyone. Even an ordinary father doesn't want his home full of pandemonium. So the devotee is having nice children to please Krishna. And taking care of those children so Krishna will be happy, so Guru will be happy, so the Acharyas will be happy. And the devotee gets enjoyment. It's not that the devotee doesn't get enjoyment. The devotee gets enjoyment in the actual way that everyone gets enjoyment, by from Krishna, by from Krishna's pleasure. So in that way, the devotee may appear to be attached. In fact, the devotee may appear to be more attached, because the materialistic person only serves others as long as they get a payment from that other. 
They'll try to, you know, a woman will try to please her husband, and if after a while he's not pleased with her, she says, oh, I'm not going to bother trying to please you anymore. Right? The man gets his wife a, a house, and then she says, oh, now can we fix up the kitchen? So he fixes up the kitchen, and then she says, oh, but now we need a new car. And he gets her a new car, <coughs> and then she says, oh, you know, my, my jewelry's wearing out. And after a while he says, you're never satisfied. I'm not going to bother doing anything for you anymore. So the materialistic person... Uh, their service is very conditional. Isn't it like that? Haven't you? Have you ever found? No, I'm, I'm coming like that. I have to just do something for you. Have you ever found like that? Have you ever felt like that? You know, I'm never going to do anything for you anymore. You're so ungrateful. No. I mean, obviously, sometimes in Christian service also, we should walk away from certain situations. But if our mood is like that, well, I was doing this for you, and you're not grateful, you're not reciprocating, I'm not going to do anything for you anymore, that means we have the wrong boss. That means we're working for something other than Krishna. So that, that's the attachment we should give up. The attachment that if I do this, if I take care of this, then I will be happy in the world. If I have a nice house, then I will enjoy my house. If I have a nice family, I will enjoy my family. Our enjoyment should be that Krishna is pleased. And then, of course, as Sudama Brahman did, we may also take pleasure in the house and the family as prasadam. And again, it's in relationship to Krishna. So Krishna, I offer you this house, I offer you this wife, I offer you this husband, I offer you this children, I offer you my, my occupation. I offer everything to you. And whatever pleasure I get, I accept as your prasadam. And the devotee, therefore, they are always doing a first-class job. Actual devotee. They don't become frustrated in their service. We read about the person in the mode of goodness who doesn't become discouraged at gain or loss, victory or defeat, happiness or distress. How is that? Because they're getting their pleasure from a higher place. And Krishna's pleased. You know, even if someday your wife isn't pleased with you and someday she is pleased with you, Krishna's always pleased if you're trying to please him. Isn't that nice? Krishna's pleasure is not dependent on that. If one day you make lasagna for your husband and he says, this is great, and next day you make lasagna and he says, two days in a row? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then you might think, ah, oh, I'm never going to cook anything nice for him again. <laughs> I just try to please you, it doesn't work out, you know? That's what I get for trying to make you happy. Forget it. You can just have, you know, spaghetti from now on. <laughs> but no, if the woman is thinking... I did this to please you, Krishna. I tried to serve my husband to please you. And you get a sense that Krishna's pleased with you. And if one day your husband's pleased, one day he's not pleased. Your happiness and your service attitude is not based, it's not contingent on that. So the devotees actually can work with more determination. Because the person may also think, well, if you're detached, then you're not going to do anything. Which is the mode of what? Ignorance. Mm -hmm. You know, if I'm not going to enjoy the fruits, if I'm not going to enjoy my wife's happiness, my husband's happiness, my children's good grades, and if I'm not enjoying those things separately from Christ, why should I work for them at all? I mean, why should I work for something I'm not going to enjoy? And do nothing. Uh, that's not detachment. But Krishna tells Arjuna, you don't have a right to the fruits of action, but you shouldn't give up doing your duty. Radical. But to actually be both detached and first class 
You, we have to be getting our happiness from Krishna. We're an Anamaya We can't get our happiness from nothing. We can't just live without happiness. You can live without happiness for a little while, but that's all. We're, we're happiness seeking. Krishna is happiness seeking, and we as part and parcel of him. We're also happiness seeking. So here, Prabhupada's telling us what is one way to make Krishna happy is have good children. Krishna wants peace and prosperity, and this is affected by having good children. So one of the important elements of our Krishna consciousness movement should be to produce good children. And Prabhupada says this uh, is before conception, <coughs> the mentality before conception. So people should be married, they should want to have children, they should be having children as a loving sacrifice, not just as some accidental result of lust. And they should take care of the children during pregnancy, of course, after birth, educate them nicely. And that this is a very important service for the whole world. So somehow in our Hare Krishna movement, taking care of children has never been a particularly popular service. And it's certainly never been a very high status service. In the past, I know. All, all, all through. I've never seen, ever since I joined ISKCON, I've never seen, in a few communities, but as a general rule, having children and taking care of children is seen as a very low status service in the Hare Krishna movement. There may be some communities where that's not true, but in general, it's like that. So I say, you know, when I joined the movement, the idea was that, you know, have as few children as possible and get back out and distribute books. Take some, you know, have a kid, and then two years later, take something else. That was a very popular life trajectory. Of course, a lot of those people, 80% of those people, weren't able to maintain their sentence. And now what I see, I mean, when, when I joined, we were uh, following Prabhupada's idea of getting married young and having your children young. But of course, that was also going on in the outside society. And now I see in ISKCON people are marrying late. You know, you'd say to somebody who's 25 years old, when are you going to get married? Oh, I'm still young. I said, you know, you've already passed your peak fertility. Prabhupada said, maximum age for men is 24. And he says, maximum age for women is 16, which would be pretty radical in modern society. But nowadays, people are waiting until 30, 35 to get married. Which makes it harder to have children altogether or to have healthy children. You know, and, and I meet so many householders who say, no, we're not going to have children. Or maybe we'll have one child. And there, there's definitely still a stigma of people who have four, five, six, seven, eight kids in the Hare Krishna movement. You know, oh, you have so many children. Why have so many children? It's not uh, like my grandson who's here. He's the oldest of eight children. And my daughter-in-law really gets a lot of criticism from other devotees. Oh, I have eight children. No, I see that. And, and how many schools do we have for children? In all of North America, we have four schools, two of them in the same community. Now, in all of Europe, there's only two communities with schools. Hungary, that has two schools, two very small schools. And London, where now we have many big schools that are government-funded. But that's it. The rest of Europe, there's no schools. Now, when I did my uh, thesis, there were, I think, four or five schools in Africa. Maybe now there's one. There's quite a few schools in India. 
But where are educational programs for our children? So, no, I, I don't see that having children and raising children is a very high priority in our movement. And if you bring your children to a program, most of the other people will stare at you if the child just makes a little happy noise. If the child even just goes, ah! Half the people turn around and go, ah! <laughs> 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 so it's, it's, it's a problem. But if we don't produce nice children, then we're not going to have peace and prosperity in society. It's just the way it is. It's definitely one of the elements of a sane and stable society. And it's a very nice service to do for Krishna. Obviously, it's not a service for everybody. But it's certainly a very important service and something that we have to put as something important within our communities, within our dealings with each other. So we have lots of nice things from this. Verses. We talked about how all the sources of, all the different branches of knowledge all have a integrated understanding that we don't have different completely different branches of knowledge that are unrelated to each other that we understand the authority of the scriptures certainly by verification from empirical sources and the ultimate empirical verification of the scriptures is our own personal experience that we can't use empirical knowledge either to discredit the scriptures as supernatural because even empirical knowledge has to go to the supernatural uh, nor can we use just empirical knowledge in general to verify the scriptures, although the ultimate verification of the truth of the scriptures is our own personal experience, which ends up being something very personal. Rajaguyam, it's a very secret and private prajaksha, an experience that the scriptures are true. And what is the scriptures telling us here? That we need a society of peace and prosperity, that a Krishna conscious society is a society of peace and prosperity, and that one of the main ways of having peace and prosperity is having good population, and we have good population as having the care of children as a primary duty. And that although sometimes Vaishnavas may externally neglect their family, as when the gopis go dance with Krishna in the middle of the night. So sometimes that may be. And in that case, it's evidence of the incredible intensity of the devotee's love for Krishna. <coughs> that generally the way we show our love for Krishna is by taking proper care of the people and the circumstances around us in his service. 99.9999999% of the time we don't show our love for Krishna by neglecting the people and the circumstances around us. That's a very unusual circumstance where the gopis had so much love for Krishna that they were even willing to do that. They are willing to do something extraordinary. But generally, we show our love for Krishna in how we care for the people and the circumstances around us and to care for them expertly, not because we want to enjoy them, but because we want to enjoy Krishna's enjoyment. Our enjoyment is that Krishna enjoys what we're doing. That's our enjoyment. We enjoy through Krishna, in relationship to Krishna. And in that way, we're totally detached from trying to exploit anyone. And yet we're more expert than those who are materially attached. So this we can examine in our life. You know, do I really believe the scriptures? Do I really believe that Krishna consciousness will bring me peace and prosperity? And am I actually trying to find happiness by taking care of everyone for Krishna's pleasure? 
Or do I think detachment just means another kind of exploitation? So you invited me to go as long as I wanted, so I did. <laughs> I, I took you at your word. We're never quite sure what that means, you know, when somebody says that. Does that mean we're just being polite, but actually we want you to end it this such and such time? Or? So questions, comments? Yes, Thank you so much, Martin. Uh, my question reflect, goes back to the beginning of the class when you talk about this empirical knowledge, mm. uh, saying relative to, like you said, at the end of it, it becomes a personal realization. I'm looking at it from my perspective. Okay. Even in Christian consciousness, for me to be able to sit around people with tailored and clothes, tie around them and shaving-headed, um, it takes some aspect of empirical conclusive evidences for me to say, well, I think I can, I think I can still hang around with them. <laughs> so, so, um, you look so, like one of them yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's them, but okay. So uh, I, I, I just reflected back, looking back at the first time I saw a devotee and I felt like, no, I don't want to get in the same bus with this guy. And then I ended up in the same bus, even though I moved to the next bus, bus stop, I walked some distance, <laughs> ended up in the bus with the same entity I was trying to avoid. <laughs> and basically then he started talking to someone and then he mentioned the temple and that got my interest. So somebody I don't want to get in the same bus with now, I want to have a conversation with you. So, but it's all about something one of experience in terms of maybe you hang out with some people, they recite some mantra and you get to like it and you feel like, oh, it feels like this. So it's still conclusive in terms of, oh, this is the experience I had. So maybe there might be something in here yes. that can make me stay alone. So if we use empirical conclusion like observation and then concluding from your observation that, oh, okay, you can give me this result in Krishna consciousness, does that diminish the the servitude attitude, or does, how does it fall into the framework of devotion? Oh, that's such a, thank you. That's a mm -hmm. lovely question. My conclusion from the ninth chapter of Bhagavad Gita is that the ultimate evidence is always my own experience. When Krishna says the chief, chief knowledge, the king of knowledge, is direct experience. So I don't see that that diminishes anything. And Prabhupada here in, in today's purport was saying that we understand the Puranas are authoritative because they are verified by modern empirical experience. And he's not saying that that diminishes our faith in the scriptures if my faith is helped by direct experience. In fact, that's reasonable. Why should I believe, because you talk about that, you know, the, the best evidence is what I hear from authority. But what I hear from authority if it's not verified by experience, then I must have the wrong authority. How do I know I have the right authority? Ultimately, the only way I know I have the right authority is why I do what that person says and it works. There is no other way that I know I have the right authority. Ultimately. I mean, I, we can say this scripture is authoritative because it was passed down in a chain of disciplic succession. How are you going to verify that? I can't verify that. 
I mean, I can't even verify that George Washington was the first president either. You know, I mean, I'm believing somebody. Anything that's distant in, in time or space, I, I lose the ability to verify it. And hey, there's so many people running around saying, we're giving you a scripture, and this is, right? How do you know someone's giving you an authentic map? The map fits the streets. I mean, I was recently in London, and I was trying to get to one shop, so I went onto the internet and did these, you know, Google Maps. But there was construction being done, and the map hadn't been updated. And so the map didn't match the streets. So then I didn't have faith in the map anymore. Duh. I mean, what kind of a fool would I be to continue to have faith in a map that didn't match the street? What, what would I do then? Walk through the construction zone? You know, there were these big walls around the construction site. So if I had faith in the map, when it didn't fit my experience, I would try to walk through the wall. But I gave my experience priority over the map. It should work. Krishna consciousness should work. George Harrison said that in the beginning of his introduction to Krishna book. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. Ultimately, each of us has faith in Krishna consciousness because we've had some experiences. Ultimately. Now, we may also have some faith in, some of our faith in Krishna consciousness may be from the explanations of the origin of the scriptures and the parampara, and that helps. That helps us even to consider trying it. You know, if somebody comes to me and says, I've gone into meditation and I've created my own map of the city of Washington, D.C. Yeah, you probably wouldn't even use it. But if someone says, here's a map from the government, well, the government's the one who's making the streets and maintaining the streets, so if anybody knows where the streets are, it's them. Now, maybe the guy's lying to me. Maybe it's not really from the government. Maybe he's made up his own map and just trying to make a buck and telling me a story. But if he tells me it's from the government, it's got the government seal on it, I'm more likely to give it a try. So hearing that this is coming from God, it's coming in a chain of specific succession, and as Krishna tells Arjuna, many, many persons in the past have achieved success, that gives me enough faith to try it. <coughs> and if I meet someone, and that someone seems happy to me, and that, some, that person seems full of knowledge, I mean, I can't go into someone else's consciousness and see what their consciousness is. But if by their external symptoms they appear to have achieved what I want, and I need a few people like that, and they tell me I'm doing this process and it works, well, that gives me some more faith. But ultimately, I'm only going to get my faith by trying it. Now, I may not have consistent results in terms of that every single time that I chant Hare Krishna on the ecstasy. But if even one time in chanting Hare Krishna, I experienced something that wasn't material, If even one time in tasting prasadam, I tasted something that was beyond the ingredients. If even one time in reading the scriptures, I had an experience of revelation that was beyond just logic. I mean, to me, it's just like right now I'm talking without a microphone. So if I were talking with a microphone, you could tell from the sound that it was artificially amplified, couldn't you? You can hear the difference between somebody speaking naturally and somebody speaking with amplification. There's a different quality to the sound. 
if I just talk loudly or if I talk with a mic, the mic, the process of amplification is different. Like you can usually tell if somebody's like watching television or a movie, the sound coming from the, is different than people talking. There's a little different quality to it. So we can tell a spiritual experience from a material experience. Spiritual experiences are authentic, material experiences are not. Just like you can tell the difference between eating food in a dream and eating food when you're awake. Sometimes when you eat food in a dream, you think it's real food. But once you wake up and you eat real food, you can immediately tell the food in your dream is not real food by comparison. If you're only eating dream food, you may think it's real. But once you eat real food, you immediately can tell the difference. Isn't it? So if we're only enjoying illusory happiness, we may think that's real happiness. But the moment we have some authentic happiness, we can tell that there's a qualitative difference in it. There's a difference in the quality. So at the lower levels of Krishna consciousness, at anista sadhana bhakti, a kanista devotee, an unsteady devotee, which if we're at all affected by passion and ignorance, then we're unsteady devotees. That means that our experience of Krishna consciousness is also going to be unsteady. Sometimes we'll experience it, sometimes we won't. <coughs> but any experience of it, even just one time, Narada Muni says, you're never an ordinary person anymore. You've had something that was real. Okay, by doing th- in this process, I've had something that's real. And then I have some trust of the other people around me who also have some experiences that are real. But my ultimate trust is my own experience. So that doesn't diminish it. That is it. Now again, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do the things to get me the real experiences unless I have some preliminary faith in Shastra and the Vaishnavas. I, I won't even try it. Although it might happen through some sort of mercy, in the sense that I might be just hanging out on the street, you know, going to the theater with my girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever, and the Hari Nam party goes by, and by the mercy of the devotees, without my having any faith, I may have the spiritual experience. And that's Lord Nityananda's mentality. Lord Chinanda, especially Lord Chaitanya, their mentality is: you have faith, you don't have faith. Here goes. <laughs> and somebody say, "Wow, what was that?" That happens sometimes. Not all the time, to everybody, but it does happen. But we're just going out on the street, you know. Here, take this cookie. Wow, what was that? And they didn't have any faith. They weren't following scripture. They weren't following the Vaishnava. They were just going to the store. I, I remember at the, in Puerto Rico, we did a program at a university there, and a devotee had made cookies, and I was in the kitchen when she was making them. They were so simple. Flour, butter, and sugar, basically. That's maybe, maybe a few drops of vanilla. I mean, they were the simplest, 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 simplest cookies that you could possibly make. And we're distributing them at the university. I hadn't eaten one yet. I was talking to some people. Everybody, everybody was saying, give me the recipe. How do you make this? What's in this cookie? Everybody. And I'm there thinking, huh? <laughs> <laughs> because they were 
tasting something genuine. They were touching something spiritual. And that was even without faith. So their faith started with that initial experience. For some of us, our faith might have started in another way. Our faith, our faith might have started by logic. Somebody convinced us of the philosophy through logic. Or some people, especially people who come from Indian backgrounds, their faith often starts because that's just their culture. They're kind of already predisposed to accept Bhagavad Gita. And if somebody comes and says, this is what's in the Bhagavad Gita, then their tendency is already to accept it. But no, that doesn't diminish the experience. That is the experience. That is the faith. That is ultimately where our faith comes from. And then gradually, our faith gets to the point that whatever is in the scriptures, even if I'm not going, I'm probably not going to directly experience in this life, you know, birds flying from one planet to another and yogis making a flying city. But I believe it based on the rest of my experience. And based on the logic that I have to believe something supernatural, I'm not going to be able to go through life without believing anything supernatural. So I believe it also based on logic. Is that okay? Very much. Thank you. Quite well. Anybody else? I have a question. Yes. It's about going back to children and family life and attachment to children. Um, Is it okay then to feel proud of your children's accomplishments and your grandchildren's accomplishments? Is that... Well, isn't it, it, that, isn't it the problem, though, that we try to enjoy that? You know, we try to enjoy, oh, I have such a qualified daughter. I have such a qualified grandson. Look how smart my granddaughter is. You know, look how beautiful my kid is. And there, there's a sense that they're mine and that really I'm, I'm trying to enjoy them and I'm trying to enjoy their accomplishments. I think certainly we can be proud of our children and grandchildren in the sense that the lakes and rivers were very proud of the bamboo fruit. (laughs) So it says, how is it our son, the bamboo rod, is enjoying the nectar of Krishna's house? And Prabhupada says that persons who are advanced in knowledge take pleasure in seeing their descendants engaged in the service of the Lord. And I think we should also take pleasure in seeing our descendants being materially expert in Krishna's service. Because that's our service. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to train them to be materially expert. Uh, but if we take some kind of ownership, the Prabhupada says the difference is very small. I see it like two parallel lines and just a millimeter difference and the other line ends up over there. So the difference between material consciousness and spiritual consciousness is very, very small. The result is very different. You know, putting food in your mouth or putting food in your eyes. I mean, the, the distance isn't so great where you stick the carrot. You know, and you're still taking a carrot and you're still sticking it in a hole in your body. So that, that action of picking up the carrot and putting it in some bodily opening is, is not different. And the distance between those two bodily openings is not great. But if I stick the carrot in my mouth or I stick the carrot in my eye, the effect is very different. So it's a, it's, it, it's a subtle thing. Where am I getting my happiness from? I just, just that. I mean, yeah. I think, but I think, and, and from my understanding also, and as a teacher myself and as an educator, I think it's important for me to tell my students how proud I am of their accomplishments. 
Oh, but they also say it to my grandkids too. But that's you that's know, your effort that you put in. I that's your service. That you've put into this project. Yeah. But see, that's your service. Your service is to say to your students and your children, "I'm so proud of you." That's your service. Just like you know, it's your service to say to your husband, "Oh, you're such a hero." You know, you know he's not a hero. I mean, not a <laughs> I'm not talking about a neutral particularly. You know, I mean, seriously. You know, you live with the guy for so many years, and you know, yeah, all right. You know Krishna's the only hero. <laughs> it's not our service to go to our husbands and say, you know, Krishna's the only hero. I mean, you're just an insignificant jiva. That's not our service. And it's it just like the, the man says to his wife, you know, you're the most beautiful woman in the world. And the woman looks in the mirror and she's like... <laughs> but she's got to hear that. You know, she's looking on the street and thinking, it's a lot more beautiful woman than I. But, but if the man says to his wife, you know, all those women, they're a lot better looking than you. That's going to crush her. So that's his service. He knows that only Krishna's beautiful. You know, so that's our service. What we say to people, how we deal with people... We should deal with them in a way... Is, is Krishna going to smile if you go to your students and say, you know, well, you're really not the doer. You're really only one of the doers. And I couldn't care less if you do well or not. I mean, that could make Krishna happy. Is that how he wants us to treat other beings? So that, that has to be there. But the mood is, am I doing this so I'll enjoy? You know, there's some pleasure in the kids saying... You know, teacher, I owe everything to you. But then, if the kid doesn't say that, then you're miserable. You know, then if the kid says, you know, my time in your class was the worst, and all the nice school I knew, <laughs> then you're crushed. And then you think, what am I teaching for? Okay. You know, I, I have a one devotee who's homeschooling, and she's always complaining to me that the kids are not grateful. I said, kids are just not grateful. It's just the way kids are. The just the nature of kids. Just the nature of kids. Yeah, they just think that everything's owed to them. Because they're so egocentric themselves. That's right. So, I was yeah. reading about um, whether or not you can identify psychopaths in childhood. And they were saying it was two measures of psychopathy. One was narcissism, and the other was impulsivity. They said the problem is that all children are narcissistic and impulsive. And so you can't use those as a... So, you know, I was telling this mother, I said, if you expect children to say to you, oh, mommy, you're homeschooling us. I said, then you, then you lose your enthusiasm. You know, so the, the key, the, 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 way I can, the way I can tell for myself as to where is my attachment is how do I respond when, the, when the, these people that I'm serving are displeased with me or ungrateful? <coughs> Which happens. It just does. You know, sometimes your husband, your children, your students, your friends, whatever, are unappreciative and, and critical even mm -hmm. of the things that you, you know, you may have stayed up all night and this and that and, and they go, oh, I didn't want this. How do I feel? Do I feel devastated? Do I feel discouraged? Do I get angry? Do I say, well, I'm not going to do anything with you anymore? You know, if I feel like that, then I'm, I have a wrong attachment. Then I'm attached to enjoying them. And I'm happy when they're enjoyable, and I'm not happy when they're not enjoyable. 
But if my attachment is to pleasing Krishna, and it's, it's, it's not easy. I found it's not so easy. To, to, you know, I've been sticking the carrot in my eye for so long, it's kind of hard to move my hand over to the mouth. And I have to, you know, and then, but it hurts. You put a carrot in your eye, it hurts. And when it hurts, instead of blaming the carrot, if I go, oh, I'm trying to stick it in the wrong place. It doesn't go there, it goes here. And when, when I feel hurt when people treat me badly, and I have plenty of opportunity to practice this, then I remind myself, oh, I'm, work, I'm working for the wrong boss. I, I need to be working for Krishna. I need to be telling my children I'm proud of you because that's what Krishna wants me to tell them, not so they'll be appreciative of me. And not so I can show them off to my friends. But so Krishna will be pleased. And then I can remain steady in success or failure, happiness and distress, victory and defeat. You know, the, the sort of descriptions of the devotee. So the devotee looks like, I mean, the, the behavior of the devotee will look like someone in the mode of passion or goodness. It will look like someone who's working out of attachment. In fact, it'll look better. But the, the inner, the inner consciousness is different. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you for asking. Anybody else? I have one other question. Oh, good. It's I was going to ask Rodman Swami, but I'll ask you, because you're so knowledgeable too. Hi, Krishna. Um, it's great to see you again. Oh, it's great to see you again <laughs> too. But, um, and this is to do with the Leela of Lord Ramachandra. Okay. Well, we talked a little bit about the Leela of Lord Ramachandra today, so okay. we'll, we'll say it's related. <laughs> no, we know the, Lord, the story of Lord Ramachandra, and... Um, I've always wondered, and we know the something that Sita went through, why did Lord Ram, he knew the heart of Sita, and he knew that she was... Why did he, why did he, why he banish, her? banish her? How can we understand? That's something I find difficult to understand sometimes. Mm. You know, and she was pregnant with two of his two children. How could he banish her? Why did he... I, I, guess, I, know why you did. I guess I see, of course we know that this is existing on more than one level. It's existing on a level of Vipralambhava between Ram and Sita. I was just hearing someone explain how when, when Sita was with Ravana, she was experiencing this happiness and separation, and she and Ram actually relished this as greater than the happiness of union. And so they wanted to experience it again. So that's, there, there's some transcendent, you know, I also feel this way that why, thank you, why did Krishna leave Vrindavan? and say, I'm going to be back in a few days. And then Prabhupada says, Krishna was neither a cheater nor a breaker of promises. And when I read that, I think, well, yeah, he is. <laughs> but there's something else going on there. there. There's some spiritual reality going on there that's not apparent material. The other reason that I see is that the, the Lord and sometimes the devotees do very extreme examples of a principle so that people in general will do less extreme examples. So we had here in our wonderful country of America, so Bill Clinton was found to do something wrong. Now, of course, you know, one has to say that many, many, many U.S. presidents had illicit activities, and generally the mood in the country was not to expose them. 
like John F. Kennedy, all the press and all of the security, they all knew that he had numerous affairs, but they just considered it wasn't their business. And of course, in Vedic times, they understood that the kings were, the royalty, the politicians would be inclined like that, and so they had some legitimate way that they could behave like that without causing a problem in society. They had a responsible way that the kings could behave like that, because they knew they were going to do it anyway. So give them some way to do it. That's where the women will be taken care of, and it will be pious. But anyway, when Clinton was, was caught, or Nixon even caught with the Watergate, you have your Watergate towers here, you know, they, they just try to defend themselves. They try to defend themselves and they try to stay in their position. They don't, they don't say, well, gosh, gee, golly whiz, I did something wrong. I should resign. They don't realize that when they're caught doing something wrong like that, our faith in them as a leader diminishes. And when your faith in someone diminishes, you can't follow them in. You lose your ability to lead. I mean, I've thought many times as a speaker, uh, just like you introduced me, why do we introduce speakers? And I've realized it's to create faith in the audience. Why should you listen to me? You're sitting there giving me your time. I don't know how much you, know, you guys are working, I don't know how much you get paid per hour, but if you're getting paid 50 or $60 an hour, you've just given me you know, $60, $70. Why would you give it to me? Why would you give me your time and attention? You've got to trust that I have something valuable to say. You have to trust that I know what I'm talking about. And you have to trust <laughs> that I care. One, one of my students made this point. He said, Mother Armillo, we will listen to people under two conditions, that we trust that they know what they're talking about and we trust that they care. Because if I know what I'm talking about but I don't care, I may use my knowledge to hurt you. And if I care but I don't know what I'm talking about, I may give you sentimentally bad information. So how are you going to trust me? Well, one way you're going to trust me is you're going to see my general moral character. If you see that I'm, I'm immoral in some area of my life, well, then maybe I'm going to be immoral with you too. Maybe I'm going to cheat you, and then you're not going to follow me. So leaders have to set a very high standard of morals and ethics. And Ramchandra, in this case, saw that his duty to the to the citizens was higher than his duty to his family. Uh, we have uh, an instance in British history where the king, of his name, where he fell in love with a commoner. I mean, now I think they've changed the laws and you can marry a commoner, but in those days, the royalty couldn't marry a commoner. Not only she was a commoner, but she was a divorced. I don't even think she was completely divorced when he was started hanging out with her. And she had other men. I mean, she was basically a loose woman. So he wanted to, he was having this relationship with this woman and he wanted to marry her. And he was told, you have a choice. You either marry this woman and give up the throne and you, you know, let go of your relationship. You can't, you can't be a ruler and have this relationship going on. And he chose to abdicate. He said, okay, I'm going to walk away from the throne. And Ram chose to walk away from the family. He considered that his duty to the country was higher than his duty to the family. That if he was in a, a morally compromised situation where the citizens couldn't respect him, then he couldn't rule properly. So I see that Ram is setting an example that if you want to be in a position of leadership, you have to be clean. And you should be willing to make it, you know, if you want to keep that position of leadership, you have to be willing to sacrifice anything for the sake of being clean. And, and Sita was also willing to do that. She was also royalty. And her mood was also, I'm willing to sacrifice anything for the good of the people. 
Now, the opposite is the ruler who sacrifices the country for the sake of their family. So, you know, you don't want to see that. You want to see that the ruler is going to deal with their family like another citizen. So that's, that's what's required of a leader. They have to be willing, you know, both the king and the queen. Not only the king, the queen also. They have to be willing to sacrifice their own personal happiness. The king goes out at the front of the army. Not that the president is, is stays in an underground bunker, you know, <laughs> sending the sons of the citizens into harm's way. But the president, the king, they were at the front. And the prophet tells that story of the Ksatria spirit, where uh, this king comes back to his castle, and it was locked, and the guards said up to the queen, your husband's back. And he said, oh, is he won? I said, no, he's lost. <laughs> oh, then he must be gravely wounded. Call for the medics. No, he's in perfect health. She said, then he's an imposter. Don't let him in. So the message came back down. The queen won't let you in. She says you're an imposter because you've neither won nor been gravely wounded. So he went back out and fought again and won. But this, was, this is the mood of a leader. You know, the mood of this queen was not, oh, great, you know, my husband's healthy, never mind. You know, that's not their mood. So the, there's a mood of, of course, someone in the mode of passion sacrifices for the sake of name and fame and honor. Someone in the mode of goodness sacrifices for purification. And someone in transcendence sacrifices for Krishna. Now, ultimately, someone in the mode of passion, they'll sacrifice truth for honor. Therefore, the Brahmins have to be guide, the Brahmins have to be guiding the society. That's why Simosa he's saying that the leaders have to be above suspicion. And even if we didn't do anything wrong, you know, our modern politicians they actually do something wrong, and they still want to keep their position. They're such fools! They don't realize that if you keep your position after you've been exposed as immoral, you you lose the. the you lose the enthusiasm of the people. And frankly, we've seen this in our Hare Krishna movement too. You know, we've seen leaders in our Hare Krishna movement who get exposed for something and they want to hang on to their position. You know, and it, it, it's damaging. It's a lot more damaging to try to hold on to your position than to just say, well, you know, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Or even to wait till you're exposed. I'm always amazed at that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to deny it. So someone will come to you quietly and say, oh, you know, my dear devotee, uh, we heard that you did this and that. No, 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 I didn't do it. And it takes 10 years for it to be exposed. And then when it's exposed, you know, then they still try to hold on to their position. And it, it, that damages people's faith and leadership in general. It doesn't just damage your faith in them. I mean, just, just to be very specific here, one-third of the people the GBC have approved as Diksha Gurus have had a fall-down that we know about. In some cases, it took us 10, 15 years to find out about it. So naturally, any intelligent person is going to think how many of the rest of them are doing something we don't yet know about. So by some leaders behaving like that, it damages your faith in leadership in general. Then you think, oh, I'm following my guru, but maybe my guru's actually got some secret this and that going on that I'm going to find out 10 years from now. 
And then society breaks apart. Then you that you damage peace and prosperity again. Then nobody wants to follow anybody anymore. And if nobody follows anybody anymore, then you have pandemonium. <laughs> and you have just you have chaos. So Rama's witness showing I mean, it's such an extreme example. His wife was accused of something she didn't do. It was already proved that she didn't do it. And one person, and for that, and it, it wasn't just that Sita suffered, you know, Ram loved Sita. It wasn't, it wasn't just, you know, looking at it from the position of Sita, look at it from the position of Ram no man wants to send away his pregnant wife. Talk to a man whose wife is pregnant. Oh, his, his mood is to protect her and to love her, and he's anxious for the child to be born and to love the child. And so he was making a huge sacrifice for himself also. So then when we have to deal with lesser things, when we have to deal with I've actually done something wrong, we can say, well, if Ram did that, at least I can do this. If, if Ram was willing to do that extent of sacrifice, then at least I should be willing to do the sacrifice that I'm being asked to do, which is on a much, much, much lower level, that I should be willing to admit what I've done wrong and be willing to give up my position. Not, not, try, to, not try to artificially hold on to some power I see it like that. That's that's his job. And Sita comes to assist with that. So Ram and Sita are both there to establish, and they establish a level of Dharma that's way, way, way up there. So at least I can do this. You know, you set the speed limit at 65, and people will drive then just, they're not going to drive higher than 80. You know that people aren't going to come to that. But anyway, there's also something else happening on the level of spiritual ecstasy and Vipalamba above, and that's going on too. And of course, Sita and Rama are always together in Ayodhya in the spiritual world. And if you're really sad about Rama and Sita, you just chant Hari Rama, Hari Rama, Rama, Hari Hari, and then they're together on your time. One devotee told me that, how he was really upset about this in the and he said, then when he was sitting down to chant his japa, he thought, oh, now I'm bringing Ram and Sita together. <laughs> Somebody else? We get, we're sort of going to a fast till noon here. <laughs> unless, you, unless you all had some snack before coming. <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me here. A really lovely community. And I've been so happy here. I just... I can't describe how happy I've been here this last week. Just on every level, spiritually, mentally, and physically, I've just been feeling very nourished. So thank you very much. All glories to Shri Prabhupada.